Well, this morning for our time in God's Word, we'll be picking up pretty much where we left off last week, and that would be with this special study on what the Bible says about demons. Especially if you weren't here last week, you're probably wondering, like, what did I just walk into? (laughs) Probably not the message with which you're expecting to ring in the new year, but there is some rhyming reason behind this short series and its timing, and I'll explain that again. On Sunday mornings, we're presently making our way through the gospel of Matthew, verse by verse through Matthew's gospel. But anytime you study one of the gospels, it doesn't take long before you encounter this world of demons, Satan, angels, demons. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, we learn about an angel announcing to Joseph the virgin birth. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted by this figure called the devil. And right thereafter, we see Jesus ministering, he's teaching, preaching, healing, and then delivering people who Matthew calls demoniacs. These are people who were demon-possessed. For example, we run into a pair of men possessed by a legion of demons in Matthew 8. Jesus casts them out. They go into a herd of swine, which then dies and, and rushes to their death. Chapter by chapter, we find more encounters with demons. They're increasingly bizarre, especially to us today, this unseen world can seem very strange and unfamiliar. And the challenge, though, is that Matthew writes his gospel assuming the reality of demons and demon possession. He also assumes his audience knows a thing or two about them. He doesn't stop to explain things. But today, I think most Christians are greatly lacking a biblical foundation on this world of demons. And that can lead to a lot of confusion when you're studying the gospels. This has made all the worse by the proliferation of superstition and error in our culture today. Because in reality, demons, they're everywhere in our culture, in our popular culture. It's just that essentially none of it comes from the Bible. None of it is biblically informed. It's all error. I've been pretty detached from movie releases for a while, but I did a search of 2023 movies. I found there were 148 horror movies released last year worldwide. And just perusing the titles, it's pretty obvious, I think at least a third had to do with demons or the occult. There's a movie called When Evil Lurks, where two brothers run into a person possessed by a demon who's trying to be physically born of its host. There's a movie called Talk to Me, where friends gain powers by holding a mummified hand and say, talk to me, asking to be temporarily possessed. They gain some powers. Then one girl holds the hand too long and is overwhelmed by the spirit, then tries to kill everybody. The list goes on. It seems like each new movie has to push the boundaries to gain an audience. But even if you don't subscribe to what Hollywood teaches, and I seriously hope you do not subscribe to what Hollywood teaches, this media works its way into a culture's beliefs, and it has a way of backflowing into the church. So it's not surprising to see similar errors concerning demons being taught by Christians. Our culture has rejected God, yet at the same time embraced the occult, So we definitely need to tune out everything the world says concerning angels and demons. At the same time, we want to better appreciate the life and ministry of our Lord as we see it in Matthew's gospel, for example, so much of which comes in in contrast to the activity of demons. And so put together, there are several good reasons for us to do a study like this. We need to search the scriptures to see what the Bible really says about demons. And as for timing, this is a good time, especially since when we resume Matthew, we're going to run right into one of the most 
intriguing and puzzling verses about demons in Matthew 12. We'll save that for later. For now, we're back with a part two on what the Bible says about demons. Keyword here being the Bible. We're not looking for man's opinion or superstition, but what God's word teaches, reveals about this unseen world. We've opted for a Q&A format just for the sake of organization. So we started last week with eight Bible-based questions and answers about demons. And it's mostly focusing on a general, broad introduction to demons. Those questions included, what are demons? Where did demons come from? What are demons like? How powerful are demons? What do demons do? What is demon possession? Can demons possess believers? And what does the future hold for demons? Time doesn't afford us any sort of a meaningful recap, so if you weren't here and you're interested, you'll have to just get that sermon on our website. But I feel like we've already grabbed the machete and cut through many of the vines of error found in our culture's teaching today. But now we're moving on. We've come back to give much more attention to this related issue of demon possession. We touched on it last week, but when you read the Gospels, again, you see a lot of this demon possession, and then the related phenomena of casting out demons, that that just spawns so many of its own questions. We want to handle some of those today, and so specifically, we're going to add four more Bible-based questions and answers concerning demons. Possession, it's a major subtopic in what the Bible teaches about demons but it's, it's super relevant, both for understanding Matthew's gospel and understanding, making sense of some of the things we see going on today. So we want to be further equipped. Now, like I said, we don't have much time for recap. But last question, or last week, rather, we did ask the question, what is demon possession? So I kind of want to repeat the gist of that to get us back up to speed. And several times, the gospel writers use this word, uh, daimonizomai in the Greek, it means someone who has been literally like demonized. We would say like demon-possessed. A demon has indwelt them and is exercising control or dominion over them, which can't be resisted. This is different from examples in the Bible of demon oppression, which is external. Demon possession is set apart in that the demon is indwelling, the demon is in control, the demon cannot be resisted. That's why some form of deliverance is needed. Demon possession has often seemed to come with physical afflictions like muteness, deafness, blindness. It also comes with mental affliction often, like madness or a self-destructive behavior. Yet we have to always clarify that not all sickness is caused by demons. In fact, in Scripture, most seems unrelated. But there are clear instances in the gospel where people were clearly controlled by an evil spirit, and it came with physical torment, suffering. Thankfully, though, we also made the case last week, for sure, believers cannot be possessed by demons. Those who are born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit can never be taken back over or indwelt by an evil spirit. Simply not possible. We made that case last week. Hopefully, though, that kind of suffices for the Cliff Notes version of demon possession and introduction. But now, here's what's really interesting and puzzling about demon possession in the Bible, that it's, it's only mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And that's it. After that, it's, it's gone. 
In total, among the Synoptic Gospels, there are 15 distinct encounters between Jesus and demons. And then in the book of Acts, there are five distinct encounters between the apostles and demons. And that's it. There's nothing else. Demon possession is not even referenced again in the rest of the New Testament. There are zero instructions given about how to identify it, what to do about it. Just, it's gone. How do we make sense of this? We learned enough last week to establish that the world of angels and demons, it's very real, though unseen to us. Spiritual warfare exists. The deception of the nations hangs in the balance. But again, it's completely unseen and undetectable to us. If the Lord didn't reveal any of these things, we would know next to nothing about it. It's safe to presume some form of spiritual warfare is still going on as it has been from the beginning. As a quick side note, I think the best explanation of the flurry of demonic activity in the Gospels has to do with the coming of the Son of God. You read the Gospels, every demon who met Jesus immediately knew who he was. They knew his true identity long before anyone else did. And so like the evil spirit says in Mark 1, 24, he says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's no mystery to them. And we established how demons are under the command of Satan last week. And so I would just postulate that, that the great serpent of old rallied his troops around and against the coming of Christ. It was an all-hands-on-deck situation to just try and oppose the work and the ministry of the Messiah. But that said, even though the rest of the New Testament is silent on the reality of demon possession, it also says nothing about or gives no indication it no longer takes place. Like we know, the unseen world of demons is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Possession is a tactic the enemy has employed in the past. So we, we have to conclude it's still possible, still ongoing. If that is the case, I don't know about you, but I have questions. I have a lot of questions. So we're going to get into some of those questions now. Again, this morning, mostly focusing on this subtopic of demon possession. And just to start off, I'll ask you if if you somehow encountered an unbeliever and you, you thought, you believed somehow that they were truly demon-possessed, what would you do about it? What would you think, dude, how would you help that person? How do you think most people would answer that? I think most would say, especially in the world, well, you need to perform an exorcism. Let's make that our first question. Question number nine, what is an exorcism? I'm calling this question nine, just we're building a cumulative list here. We did eight questions last week, so I guess technically this is question nine. What is an exorcism? Here's a simple definition. An exorcism is just a special ceremony used to drive demons out of a person. The ceremony can differ, but it includes you know, rituals, formulas, incantations, artifacts, all used to compel a demon to leave a person. The Catholic version of this has become very formal over the years as their dogma has evolved and codified. It involves a, a what-to-bring list, Bible, holy water, rosary, crucifix, a medal of the Virgin Mary, now a medal of St. Bernard, or Benedict rather, which inscribes, reads, step back, Satan. The official ceremony involves a long battle where the priest adjures the demon to leave the person. He lays hands on them, reads various scripts over them, He'll sign the crucifix, or uh, yeah, the, the crucifix three times. 
uh, the cross over their brow, lips, and chest, sprinkles them with holy water, applies a crucifix or other relics to their head and chest. All the while, the priest is instructed to pay special attention to any words that cause the spirit to tremble and use them more frequently. He's to persist in this manner as long as it takes. It could be days, weeks, or months. The Protestant ceremony of an exorcism, exorcism rather, is not all that different. They drop the holy water crucifix and Virgin Mary stuff, but they keep the cross and the big Bible. And it's the same kind of drawn-out process of yelling at a demon to leave the person for as long as it takes, all in the name of Jesus. However, modern evangelicalism is host to some even more extreme forms of exorcism. Perhaps you've seen or encountered some. In one example, back in the 70s and 80s, a man named Bob Larson, who was a famous, you might say, infamous exorcist. He came to put on exorcisms, uh, kind of like a sideshow. He, took, he made them a public spectacle. Later, he sought to monetize his exorcism. He had uh, an online 21-question test you could take to determine if you were demon-possessed. And if so, you could buy his DVDs, or you could always come into his compound to get delivered. There, he will seek to determine which satanic curse led to your possession. His claim is that the exorcist must find the exact wording of this curse and then formulate a renunciation to break it. It really takes like a spiritual lawyer to conduct this type of inquisition. And he can do that for a small fee. In 2014, he started taking to do this type of deliverance over Skype for $295. Now, sometimes, though, these modern exorcisms don't go as planned. In 2001, a Korean minister was performing an exorcism on a woman in New Zealand, and he was jumping on her chest and strangling her, and she died. But then her body was left for six days because he then claimed she would be resurrected. That didn't happen. He was arrested, thankfully. And it was discovered he had originally fled South Korea for doing the exact same thing. But for now, you get the picture. What is an exorcism? It ranges from religious to the bizarre, but you can define an exorcism as some special rite or ritual designed to drive out demons, almost always employing incantations, charms, or relics. Now, with this in mind, we can ask question number 10. Are exorcisms biblical? Are exorcisms biblical? hope you know the answer. It's a very clear, resounding No. Nothing biblical about this. Might shock you a little bit to learn that Jesus and the apostles, they, didn't, they never once performed an exorcism. Not once. And Jesus was not an exorcist. You might wait and ask, like, wait, I, I thought he cast demons out of people all the time. He did. But you have to understand the difference between what Jesus did and what passes and is called exorcism today. They're, they're not the same thing. Not once did Jesus and the apostles do anything that resembles what we call exorcism today. How did Jesus and the apostles deliver people? And they did. But every time it was just with a word. Right? They commanded the demon to leave and it left. Simple as that. The deliverance was instant and total. There was no battle or struggle. There was no ceremony. There was no ritual. There was no incantation. There was no cat and mouse game. What they did was completely unlike exorcisms today. Why didn't Jesus and the apostles light some candles, perform a ceremony, recite some 
incantations or sayings to cast out a demon. Why didn't they do that? Because they didn't have to. They had complete authority. Jesus, being God, possesses absolute authority over demons. They must do what he commands. And he delegated some of that authority to his representatives, the apostles. And so they did the same thing. Remember uh, back in Matthew 10, we learned about Jesus sending the 12 out to preach. It says this, Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These 12 men had no power on their own, but Jesus enabled them to heal and deliver. Why? Well, these were signs meant to authenticate them as God's messengers. You think about healing. How did Jesus and the apostles heal people? Just with a word, almost as if they had authority over sickness. You're blind? Not anymore. You're deaf? Not anymore. You're paralyzed? Get up and walk. And that's it. It's just instant, total, complete healing every time by command. And it was the same with their deliverance. When they cast out demons, it was instant, total, complete, just by command. Sometimes Jesus even cast out demons long distance, like with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. This just brings up a key concept here, namely authority. Jesus, being God, had and has complete authority over all demons. And they knew this. This is why we witness demons not running up to attack Jesus. They run up, they fall down in submission, knowing he can do anything. And they beg him for mercy because they know he has full authority over him, over them rather. And it was by that authority Jesus cast them out. Go open your Bibles, go to Mark, Mark chapter 1, show you another example of this. It's the exact same authority Jesus delegated to his apostles, his special representatives. See a very clear example of that authority in action. Mark chapter 1, starting verse 23. Mark 1, 23, I'll start reading. It says, just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Verse 27, the people, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Is this an exorcism? Do you see any exorcism here? This is just authority. There's no ritual, just a command with instant, complete deliverance. And note the people were amazed because they recognized Jesus operates with authority. You have to understand the Jewish people at the time, they believed demon possession was real. And they had exorcists. The modern idea of exorcism is not modern. It is ancient. It goes way back. The idea that through a ritual using relics or incantations, a person can drive out a demon. That is an ancient idea, even from the time of Christ and before. There's some Jews in Christ's day who claim to be exorcists. The Jewish uh, historian Josephus 
recorded a story about an exorcist named Eleazar. I think I told this back in Matthew 10, but I'll repeat it. This man once encountered a demon-possessed man, so he took a special root, he put it in a ring, he held the ring up to the nostrils of the demoniac, and then he claimed to pull the demon out through the nose of the man. He told the demon not to return, recited some special incantations, also to persuade spectators that he really had this power, Eliezer would set up a glass of water some distance away. Then he would urge the demon to knock it over on its way out to prove to people that the deliverance really happened. Stories like this abounded in this subculture of Jewish exorcism at the time. It's just that they were overall ineffective. No one really buying it because they didn't really help or deliver people. But this is why the people were so shocked at the ministry of Jesus. Because contrary to their exorcists, it, this is, here's one with undeniable authority and power. Now, I should say that the word exorcist itself does come from the Bible. It's derived from the Greek word exorcistes. But the word is never used of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, that word is only used once in the New Testament. And it's used to refer to a group of false Jewish exorcists. Let me show you. Go over to Acts chapter 19. Kind of flip over Acts chapter 19. The writers of scripture were very careful not to apply this word to Jesus and the apostles. Because they did not think of them as exorcists. They knew they were different. Acts 19, this passage is also instructive for those who think they can use the name of Jesus like a magical charm. It becomes its own incantation, the name of Jesus. That's what a group of Jewish exorcists thought, but they were wrong. It's a somewhat humorous story as well. Acts 19, verse 13 through 16. 19, verse 13, it says, But some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Verse 14, Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That did not go so well for them. Look, demons already know the name of Jesus. Again, in the Gospels, they're the ones running up to him, confessing who he really is long before anyone else knows that. There's nothing magical about his name, as if anyone can just use the name of Jesus and command demons. It it does not work that way. Yes, a few times we see the apostles casting out demons in the name of Jesus, like Paul casting out a demon out of a, a girl in Acts 16, 18, and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. Yes, but he was not using the name of Jesus like a magical charm. Paul and the apostles were appealing to the authority of Jesus, which was dutifully delegated to them as his apostles. Because again, it all comes down to authority. Exorcisms, both ancient and modern, are completely devoid of authority. They, they appeal to other things, charms, incantations, rituals, relics, to try and gain some power over demons. But all these things are way more pagan than Christian. They don't come from God. They're not taught in the Bible. You should have nothing to do with them. That might shock some of you. And some think, but wait, like, 
I have a friend, they, they saw an exorcism. They had an experience. They felt like it was so real. What do we make, though, of all these people, like Eliezer in the past to, to many people today, who claim to have seen or experienced an exorcism? Seems so real. What, what do we do? Question 11. Why can't experience be trusted, especially when it comes to demons and exorcism? Why can't experience, experience be trusted, especially when it comes to demons and exorcism? Let's, let's answer that. Because at this point in the discussion, most, many people rather might, might fall back on personal experience. They don't really like hearing that the Bible does not support their exorcism practices. But in, instead of accepting this fact and questioning their own experience, they do the opposite. They accept their experience as fact and they question the Bible. So many people are driven by experience. They evaluate truth and reality by experience, not the word of God. And so accordingly, more than a few would testify that, oh yeah, exorcisms are real. Despite everything we've, we've covered so far, they're not convinced. Because look, one time they saw a pastor perform an exorcism and it was real. Or they had a friend once who said they were possessed and but after they held the Bible on their forehead for a couple hours and kept saying the name of Jesus, the demon left, and they were better. And it was real. We want to be generous and gracious, but also careful and discerning, lest we are deceived. So what do we make of experiences like this? Because they abound. We put it this way, why should you not let personal experience be your guide, especially when it comes to the subject of demons and exorcisms? Well, let me give you a few points of caution. Go back now to Matthew chapter 7. A really critical passage in this discussion. Matthew 7 is such an informative passage. Whenever people tell me about their wild experiences, and as a pastor I hear it all the time, I do not immediately doubt them. Who am I to say what they did or did not experience? How, How would I know? But it's my job to help them evaluate their experience according to Scripture. Because experiences can be deceiving. Where do you think Mormonism came from? It all came from the experience of Joseph Smith, their founder. It's all based on his personal experience, not the word. And a lot of trouble has resulted. Look here at Matthew 7. We we encounter people in verse 21 had these amazing experiences The context here is Jesus warning against false prophets, those who deceive people. And he says this, we know this well, going through Matthew, references passage a lot, Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. A critical lesson here that a fruitless faith is no faith at all. Like he said before, you will know them by their fruit. Anybody can claim to be a Christian, can call Jesus Lord, but these people were not truly born again. That does not mean they were not outwardly religious. They were very religious. Verse 22, it says, Many, not a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is going on here? A group of people 
being rejected from heaven, from the kingdom. They called Jesus Lord. Yeah, but, but talk is cheap. These people had religion, but not relationship. They had outward performance, not inward change. They had experience-driven sensationalism, not godliness. So isn't this so telling? These people appealed to Jesus, and they, they defended themselves. They claimed that their faith was real based on what? Well, based on their works, but they pointed to their miraculous works. And look, they even said that they worked in Jesus' name. But you notice, of the three works they boasted of, none of them are actually commanded by God. We're never commanded to do these things. Prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. These were legitimate signs of the apostles, but in the scriptures, these are never made the measure of godliness. It's not like they're, they're claiming the fruit of the Spirit. I, I love my neighbor. I was generous and patient and kind. No. Instead, in reality, these people's lives were characterized by what? As Jesus says in verse 23, lawlessness. You, you practice. Your life was lawlessness. They may have called Jesus Lord with their mouth, but they denied him with their lives. You are saved by faith, apart from works, but there was a false faith. It was a dead profession that produced no works, no righteousness. Now, there are so many lessons here. You don't want to miss the main point that you must know and follow the true Jesus by faith. And that faith, if it's real, it will produce a changed life bearing the fruit of righteousness. But I'm sure you can't help but notice with our discussion that, that these people who end up in hell, they claimed to do what? Verse 22. To cast out demons in the name of Jesus. That means, just think about it, at some point in their life, they had an experience of casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. And presumably it worked because they regarded themselves as, well, successful. This is their boast. So just just think about it, that they apparently cast out demons. Now, of course, Jesus does not accept their claim or their works as legitimate, which means their own works deceive them. They, what they thought, what they did, what they experienced, they thought it was so real, but it was so wrong. It was not real. I don't doubt that these people and many others had real experiences, but when it comes to personal experience, there's always a kicker. How can you prove it's coming from God? Can you prove that experience comes from God? Could it just as easily have come from a demon? Could you be being deceived by demons themselves? Because you know that's their business, right? We've got to read again this, this preview. Go to Matthew 12, this passage from Matthew 12. Uh, this is what we'll hit when we resume Matthew. Just think about this, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Verse 43, he says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So you can see that this is a strange passage. We're not going to delve into what it means in context right now. Christ is making some point about that wicked generation, but we'll save that for Matthew 12. But 
we do learn some things, incidentally, about demons in this account. First, we learn that demons desire indwelling, that the state of indwelling is preferred to them versus roaming around seeking habitation. To them, possessing a human is better than roaming around. Okay. Second, we learn that's not easy. He says, seeking rest, they find none. So we get the picture that possessing a person is a challenge. Okay, that's good. Third, though, we learn that when demons do possess a person, they can, of their own will, leave a person and come back. Right? We saw that. They, they can, of their own volition, leave and come back. Especially if they find it empty, devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very interesting. Why would a demon ever leave a person if that's the better place, if that's the preferred place? We already established in Matthew 12, Satan does not cast out Satan. For demons, their whole mission is to take down mankind. So why would they ever stop tormenting a person whom they had taken a hold of on their own? Could it be to deceive? Could it be to distract people from sin, repentance, and the gospel, which are the real means of pleasing God and, and making people change? Could it be to lead people into believing that they have power over demons and getting them to buy into this whole unbiblical system of exorcism? Don't you think demons want you using the name of Jesus like a magical charm? They want you buying into formulas and rituals, incantations, magical sayings, artifacts, rituals. Why? Because those things in reality are powerless and they want to keep you away from the real source of power, which is what? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Demons are very happy to keep people subscribing to religion to keep them from the true gospel. And that's what's happening. You look at famed exorcists, the gospel is not preached. You look at all things demonic and exorcism related on, on TV and movies, the gospel is never the answer. Like, what do we do here? We need to preach the gospel of Christ. That's never the answer. This is just false religion. And beware of giving too much weight to personal experience. Why can't experience be trusted? Even if you feel it's real, why can't it be trusted? Especially when it comes to demons and exorcism. Well, one, experiences can be wrong. They can be misleading, misinterpreted. They can be outright false. But even if your experience was valid... How do you know it came from God? That, that proof is on your, the burden's on you to prove that, that it came from God. Especially concerning demons, they deal in deception. And so knowing they can voluntarily leave a person, how can you trust what you are seeing? Think about how ludicrous this is. One more example, that famed exorcist, Bob Larson, he claims that cast out demons, you have to first interrogate them to find out this specific curse information, which only they know. You've got to get it out of them. You can formulate something to break it. And so just think about that. You have to interrogate a demon for information to cast out the demon. And where are you getting this information from? From the demon. And you're taking its word for it. Like, you're just going to believe him. They're, they're liars. Their master is the father of lies. Like, that makes no sense at all. And we must test and weigh all things according to Scripture, not experience, Scripture tells us ancient and modern forms of exorcism are not biblical. 
And so do not be deceived by the enemy's real strategy, which is to keep people away from the power of the gospel message. People today are so desperate to see the miraculous that they just gloss right over the real miracle, which is new birth brought about by faith in Christ. I know we've devoted most of our time so far just to refuting this notion of exorcism and dealing with demons. I kind of think it's necessary given all the, the misinformation that's dominated our thinking, ancient and modern, as if this is how you conduct spiritual warfare. It's not. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not how Jesus and the apostles did it. Like we said at the beginning, the issue is authority. Jesus and the apostles did not perform a single exorcism. They delivered people. They, rather, they, they cast out demons with a word, with a command, resulting in instantaneous, total deliverance. Demons are bound by the authority of the Son of God, and he delegated that special authority to his representatives, the apostles, to do the same thing. This spawns one more relevant question we'll ask this morning, the question 12. Do believers today have authority to cast out demons? Do believers today have authority to cast out demons? We're not talking about exorcism anymore, but the biblical category, casting out demons, that's biblical. Can we do that today? Demons are real. They can possess people. People need to be delivered. So can we cast them out just like Jesus and the apostles did? And the answer here is no, you can't. Why not? Because you do not have the same authority to cast them out. I guess it might sound a little shocking or controversial to you, but I'll seek to try and prove it to you. Casting out demons belongs to the same special category of abilities known as the sign gifts. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to all believers. But in the first century, before scripture was written, God gave select men special gifts for a specific reason. These men were known as the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church, Christ being the cornerstone. And how did they found the church? How did they get the church started? It's by preaching the gospel and telling people about Christ. Remember, they had this radical message that they were spreading. Read all the book of Acts. This crazy message that this, hey, this Jewish carpenter, he's actually your Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He died on a cross, rose from the dead. And now by believing in him only, you can be saved and have eternal life. Who's going to believe that? Like to Gentiles, that's foolishness. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. Like it's just a crazy message. Why would anyone believe these 12 random, uneducated fishermen from Galilee who claimed to know God incarnate? Well, Scripture, the New Testament, had not been written yet. They could not appeal to that authority. So in starting this New Covenant people, the church, God made them the authority. He made their words the authority. And he did so to prove it with signs. To demonstrate their God-given authority, God enabled them to perform signs and wonders. These signs had a clear purpose, which was to demonstrate their authority and to, to show that they were God's messengers. You should listen to them. These signs included healing, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and casting out demons. They're called in the Bible the signs of the apostles. And these abilities belong to them. Otherwise, they would not be called the signs of the apostles. Two key verses in this discussion always to reference 1st, 2nd Corinthians 12, 12. 
Paul says to them, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, it says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us for those who heard that the powers in the gospel message spoken by the Lord, confirmed by those who heard, the apostles. Verse 4 says, God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, of course, once the apostles and prophets passed away and the New Testament was written, the sign gifts passed away too. This does not mean God no longer performs miracles. Nobody teaches that. Of course, he still performs miracles. It just means that the Holy Spirit is no longer giving sign gifts to individual men as there's no more need to authenticate apostles. And so accordingly, when it comes to casting out demons in authority, like Jesus did, like the apostles did, well, it's not surprising to find in the first century in all church history that sign gift passed away as well. We should clarify the Bible does not mention and call out a specific gift of casting out demons, but I would contend that's because that ability was included with healing, the gift of healing. The Bible does not confuse demons with disease, but deliverance from both was called healing. Again, with the Syrophoenician daughter, when Jesus cast the demons out of that girl, he pronounced her what? Healed. And it goes many times. To be fair, with those who disagree, we can say this. Like, whatever your position is on the sign gifts, especially healing, like, that's going to be your position on casting out demons today. So I understand that. I think I've made the case here and elsewhere that the sign gifts belonged to the apostolic era and have passed away. Think about healing. Jesus healed people supernaturally, right? But in the New Testament, we are never directed or commanded or instructed to deal with sickness by saying, be gone or be healed or get up and walk. We know that's not for us. We don't have that authority. Likewise, Jesus delivered people supernaturally. But in the New Testament, we are never directed, commanded, instructed to deal with demons by commanding them to leave. We don't have that authority. Why should they listen to us? Now, think about this. So that being said, when someone gets sick, what do you do about it? Do you walk up to them and say, you know, get up and walk or be healed? You try as you might, but it doesn't work. You don't have the sign gift of healing. You don't have the authority to command healing like the apostles. You know this. But you still pray for them because you recognize God has the power and the authority. He can wield it according to his will. So you appeal to him. And when someone is healed, you praise him. He's the healer. Amen. We pray for people to be healed all the time. And think about deliverance, though. You encounter an unbeliever you think to be possessed. What should you do? Perform an exorcism? No. How about, same thing, you pray for them, recognizing I don't have the sign gift. I don't work wonders. I don't have the authority to cast out demons. But I'm going to pray to God. He has the authority and the power to deliver. And if that person is delivered, you would praise God. He's the deliverer. Amen. Just don't confuse praying for healing and deliverance with the sign gifts of healing and deliverance. They're not the same thing. We pray for healing and deliverance as needed all the time. But we're just reckoning with the staggering fact that there's not a single command or instruction concerning demon possession or what to do about them in the rest of the New Testament. Nothing, not a single thing is mentioned in all the epistles. Not even one reference. So how do you explain that fact? 
It's almost as if the writers of Scripture were trying to prepare the church for a time when the sign gifts were not normative. It's not that the New Testament authors ignored the topic of spiritual warfare. They had a ton to say about spiritual warfare. It's just that they understood that no longer consists of authoritatively casting out demons. It looks different now. You might think, well, what does it look like? You might be thinking, if all this is true, what are we supposed to do? Because we've said many times, demons are real, possession is real, spiritual warfare is real. Okay, so if we don't have the authority to cast them out like Jesus did, like, what are we supposed to do here? How do we conduct spiritual warfare? What does God expect us to do? What, what has he told us to do? What does his word say about what we are to do? That is the question we need to ask. It has a huge answer, which you haven't guessed it, will be the, the focus of our third sermon, a third and final message next week. We need to fill in now, okay, what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? Having cut through all the error concerning demons and spiritual warfare, we, we need to fill in what Scripture does say about how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, in this era, against our very real foes of Satan and demons. And we will do that next week. We can finish with this thought, though. I would just encourage you at the end to not take for granted the miracle of the gospel and your own new birth. The new birth that produces the salvation it grants. Do not take that for granted. That The Son of God came to earth. He did die on a cross and rise from the grave to break the power the devil had over us, to pay for our sins, to grant us everlasting life. We know the world sees the cross as foolishness, but I hope you see it as the glory of God. That's where your sins were paid. That's where you died. That's where you were raised to new life. And by faith in Jesus, you gain his salvation. You already have the power of God in you, effective for eternal salvation. You need to make Christ your trust, your boast, your hope. You know, on another occasion, Jesus sent out, not the 12, he sent out the 70. He had 70 disciples, sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he also delegated to them his authority to work wonders. He gave them the authority to heal, to cast out demons. Luke 10 tells us about the return. Just listen to this. Luke 10, that the 70 coming back. Luke 10, 17 says, The 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Signs and wonders are amazing. Just to see God's power enter this world as he's retaking dominion over creation, it's amazing. We praise God for them. But it all pales in comparison to the miracle of redemption, that he would send his son to take on human flesh, humble himself to the point of a slave, die and be sacrificed on a cross, all so that our names might be recorded in heaven. Even though we were completely undeserving, that is the real marvel and miracle. We still have a lot to learn about how the Lord has equipped us to stand firm against Satan 
and demons, but let's make sure we are never deceived or distracted from the real glory and power of the gospel and the salvation it brings. Let's make sure we always make Christ our hope, our trust, our boast, our Savior always. Let's count on him. Let's pray. Our Savior in heaven, we, we do praise you, Lord Jesus, this morning together, starting a new year, asking you help us to be daily reminded you're our only hope, our only Savior, you're the hope of glory, you're the only power, the only one we need to turn to for all things. If we come away at least cherishing Christ, holding him a little stronger, then, then that is good. It's well with our souls. We thank you for the Savior who did come and live and die and rise to overcome the power of the devil and the power of our own sin, that we might be freed from that dual bondage and and brought back to to you. Thank you for this gospel message. I pray it it dwells deeply in our hearts, even implants in the hearts of those who don't know you this morning, that they come find the real hope, the real power that you've given, the real miracle of new birth and everlasting life in Christ. Thank you for these things. Cherish these things. Just may we be a people of your word at the end of the day those who seek to know you and honor you and follow you through your word, the revelation you've given that we might know you, God, this Christ, the spirit indwelling. Just fill us with the truth, remind us, renew us in it to honor you. And thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.